Hello and welcome to The Conversation, a podcast from the Spectator world. I'm Oliver Wiseman. This week I'm joined by two contributors to our August issues cover package, Jesse Single and Ricky Schlott. The starting point of Jesse's piece is as depressing as it is clear-cut. The kids are not all right. But why? Jesse delves into the data and attempts an answer. Ricky, meanwhile, delivers a spirited assault on the modern-day university. An undergraduate at NYU at the start of the pandemic, she dropped out after classes went online and hasn't looked back. She asks why so many students are following suit and wonders what the trend's long-term impact will be. I spoke to Jesse and Ricky about their pieces, as well as the big-picture question of whether Gen Z can save themselves. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Okay, uh, Jesse, let's let's start with you. Your, your piece has a kind of simple starting point, which is that you know something has gone wrong when it comes to the well-being of Americas of, of young Americans. Uh, the more complicated bit is is why and exactly what has gone wrong. So, so what is the kind of headline finding in terms of trying to answer that question? Yeah, I mean, I think the most popular answer to that, which has been popularized by folks by jo- like John Haidt is that social media is having an effect on young people's mental health. You see these higher rates of things like anxiety and depression symptoms and self-harm and suicidality. So one theory is that the social comparisons uh, you get if you use a lot of Instagram or Facebook could be causing some degree of harm. I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. I, I think we should also note that the rise in youth mental health problems also occurred, you know, in the direct wake of a a worldwide financial crisis that really affected a lot of families in the U.S., millions of them, uh, tens of millions of them, whatever you, you want to call it. So to me, you know, my catchphrase is sort of, it's complicated, which I think is unsatisfying and, and doesn't lend itself to easy analysis. But I think there's probably a mix of stuff going on. But whereas in the past, we've had these sort of Luddite, technophobic panics about technology. I do think social media is is different from what's come before and could be a factor here. Um, Ricky, your piece focuses on the university uh, as an institution and the ways in which it is failing uh, young Americans. Why don't you start by, I mean, a lot of that has to do with some of the stuff Jesse's talking about, but before we get to that, why don't you just kind of explain your own story? Because uh, for those who haven't read the piece, you, you you were a student and well, I'll let you explain the story. Yes. So I am a 22 year old journalist. I should have graduated from college this spring, but instead I'm a year and a half into my career because during the pandemic, I was a sophomore and I was doing the Zoom sessions and 8am feudalism lectures, which were absolutely painful because I was in a different time zone. And I just, you know, I saw the the absolute deterioration of my academic experience. And then I started thinking more critically about it in the first place and the utility of it and the exorbitant costs and really kind of breaking it down in a more analytical sense because I was pulled out of the kind of achievement loop status quo. And so I ended up leaving school first on a leave of absence just to try my hand at actually doing work and and writing and following a passion rather than just going to law school because it seems like the right thing to do. And now I still have not gone back. I just officially unenrolled from NYU and have an acceptance letter in hand from Columbia, which one day I might decide to pursue. But in the short term, I I certainly am of the belief that a lot of my generation just kind of was following the status quo and a degree right now might be as unnecessary as it kind of ever has been, especially given the enormous economic opportunities with a job market that is just desperate for employees. So that's that's sort of how I landed here. And in lots of ways, I think the, uni- the story of the university 
and kind of campus life is kind of what Jesse's describing in microcosm, right? Or sort of turbocharged because you have, you know, the retreat into the online in the form of virtual learning, albeit that's slightly different from social media, but the online dynamic, you have kind of the kind of bat raw economic deal that lots of students get in terms of, you yeah. know, huge debt that doesn't necessarily uh, pay off in the long term. And you have a kind of censorious kind of free speech problem as well, uh, which is a broader societal problem. So, you know, does one thing you talk about in your piece is the kind of reaction to this is a lot of people dropping out, as you've done. Um, does that give you any hope that things will get better? Or do you think that, you know, it has to get worse for us? I mean, how, how, what's the sort of prognosis for kind of college life? I think that there's, it's just a net positive that people are kind of carving their own paths and doing more unorthodox things. Um, I think there was almost like a stigmatization over like going to trade school or just actually trying something without a degree. And I think that is just a net positive. But in terms of higher education itself, I think it's gotten kind of drunk on its own power because people like me just felt like I needed to do it just for the sake of it. And, you know, if you if you had an affordability issue, then the federal government was right there to back you with loans that you couldn't get out of that will drown you for your entire young adulthood and prevent you from getting a mortgage. And so I think actually there is, I see a glimmer of hope right now, especially because there's a huge decline in high school student interest in pursuing higher education, which is in one sense sad, but in another sense, there's actual market pressure being applied to these institutions that have just been able to create increasingly bizarre degrees and charge increasingly exorbitant fees to get them. So I think I think this is kind of the beginning of a little necessary correction. And Jesse, in some of the things you write about, um, whether it's social media or, or, some, or some of the other stuff that's kind of behind problems for young, young Americans, I mean, is there any sign that, you know, the problems peaked and that actually younger cohorts are kind of less affected by these trends or are we just are just things getting progressively worse as we as we you know go more online and the pandemic kind of continues to cause problems and and so on and so forth i think it's difficult to say and i'm not sure we have the data um you can sort of see it see it go both ways. You could see kids who grew up with this technology being able to handle it better. You could also see I mean, I can't imagine having social media like this when I was 12. I think it would have melted my brain. So you could also see it, um, you know, getting worse. I, I do think that they'll probably just be people will develop better norms. Like they'll realize you should not let your kid use Instagram 12 hours a day and, and adults will maybe develop, you know, a better ability to restrain yourselves. Like in certain senses, we've gotten better, well, arguably better about not eating all the fatty foods that's available to us. So I, I think there'll be an adjustment. I don't think things will continue getting worse inexorably, but I, I don't know if we're yet at an inflection point. Yeah, and Jesse, I can speak to that having been an 11-year-old on Instagram myself, which is <laughs> yeah, um, kind of frightening. To, my mom is like, you're saying the worst things, like you're making me look like a terrible mother. But back in that in that time period in 2011, you know, parents didn't really know that their kids posting pictures of like their dogs and their lunch was going to morph into this like crazy like body dysmorphia for girls and self-harm and suicide spiking exactly at the same point but I think to your point there is like a, a point of correction because now parents are armed with the knowledge that there is even internal data at Facebook that suggests that Instagram is uh, harmful to teen girls. And um, one statistic that I wrote about at one point and with regards to my own experience is that 61% of Gen Z says they want to take a break from social media. 
And then 24% were considering uh, quitting entirely, which is, I think, data from last year. But, you know, it goes to show that there are at least some kids who have an interest in reclaiming their autonomy from these devices. And so there might be some hope that, you know, people are kind of taking their lives back. I suppose the the the, the, the pessimist, the, pe- the evidence for kind of pessimism would be that kind of every iteration of a new bit of social media gets sort of more dystopian, right? If we go from the kind of naive Facebook of like my of my teenage years to Instagram to TikTok, which is kind of like this terrifying, endless, endless kind of algorithm that sucks you in. Yeah. And then into the metaverse, which is even scarier. Uh, Je- Jesse, do you, do you have any sense of, of, of whether the, when it comes to our kind of lives online and, and, and how young Americans kind of exist online? I mean, obviously, the pandemic took schools remote and college remote. But has it has it made these problems worse? Or, or, or I mean, anecdotally, it feels like it has. But Yeah, I think the data is a little bit mixed on that. Like, I know that the suicide graph, thankfully, uh, doesn't point the way you'd think it would point during the pandemic. There is a sense in which moments of like real national crisis bring people together. And actually, I think you hear a lot about this, like people who live through disasters, genuine crisis doesn't always have the effects on mental health you would think it would. I, I do think with some kids in school, you could see this making them much more isolated, pushing them online toward more social media, having a negative effect on their mental health just from not being socialized with other kids. I, I think we're going to find that that had a lot to do with things like class and and how much nearby friends and family they had who they could see in real life. So I, I think not to revert to my catchphrase, but I do think it's complicated. And, and, and Ricky, I mean, is that I mean, as someone that was kind of on the front lines, as it were, during the pandemic in college? I mean, is that do you have kind of anecdotes to to add any clarity to the, that kind of complex picture? I mean, do you feel as though people have slipped more into online life? Or is there the sense of, of like, because of being stuck behind a screen for so long uh, during COVID that, you know, younger Americans are, have had have hit a breaking point and want to want to kind of get out there and do real world things again. Yeah, well, I mean, those statistics that I cited are basically the best news that I can provide on that front. But I would say absolutely anecdotally, I've seen even just my social networks in college go completely online and then kind of be disaggregated when we come back. And, you know, some people are still remote and hybrid and and going to school from home and their entire social lives end up being plugged into a computer. And, you know, I think certainly anecdotally, I've seen more and more people end up entirely online. And even like some of the concerns about social media and body image issues with girls, like you saw rates of um, eating disorders, they soar during the pandemic. And so I think that's probably more evidence that people are self-actualizing like in the internet and comparing themselves in a way that they probably or to a degree that they probably hadn't before let's try and let's try and be a little less uh a little less gloomy is there i mean what we're talking about here is a kind of world gen z is living in that was built by well mostly millennials right millennial tech uh founders and and yeah our, our bad sorry about that right <laughs> so 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 do, do either of you have any thoughts on whether you know there's a sense in which gen z is you know is is building something of its own that you know is 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 jumping out from behind the shadow of of millennials who created this lame social media world and, and it will do something different or 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 are we just stuck stuck with this kind of online life? I well I can say 
I think my generation's only social media contribution really thus far is the musically turning into TikTok thing. And I wouldn't really say that that's something necessarily to be too (laughs) proud of. But I don't, I haven't really seen us kind of pushing new frontiers aside from the fact that TikTok skews very young. But obviously, that comes with a whole host of consequences. I'm not as familiar with TikTok. I will say, some of the stuff on there, I do find like more playful and and less toxic and harmful than a lot of and Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, like I would rather have people using TikTok to like spread some goofy new dance than to viciously assassinate people's reputations. But it could just be that I'm seeing a little slice of it because I'm not on there as much. But I, I don't think it's all bad. I think there is a there's a there's a playful element to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some pretty like creepy crevices in it, uh, for sure. I've reported a lot on like communities based on mental health issues and the fact that young people are literally developing like Tourette's like ticks on the basis of being exposed to it. Like there are kind of strange crevices that are whereas Instagram is here's my best shiniest picture of myself. There's a lot of corners of TikTok of I'm so vulnerable. Here's my the worst side. And I think there's a there's a toxicity that a lot of young people are exposed to that almost was sort of Tumblr was the predecessor to that, I would say yeah, before. Definitely. But yeah, I but I I agree that like holistically there's there's a lot more positivity on on TikTok than other platforms, that's for sure. Um Jesse, one thing you've written about uh, and actually in a previous issue for us is kind of therapy and the idea that you know, that this kind of the weaponization of therapy, the idea that everyone has to go to therapy. And I, I wanted to just follow, I mean, one of the interesting things about this kind of, these themes we're talking about is, you know, the kind of, the the the, the generation maybe with the biggest kind of emphasis on wellness and mental well-being and so on and so forth, uh, you know, much more focused on that, more, much, much more willing to talk about those things is also the one that, you know, if the numbers are true is kind of, really really suffering the most so i wondered if jesse you had any kind of you know if you sort of reconcile those two those two things you've written about yeah i mean so one interesting aspect of online life is that a lot of the stuff a therapist would tell you to do or not do you will get the exact opposite feedback online so you know if you if you feel like people are taking advantage of you or hate you, but you only have indirect evidence of that, a good therapist wouldn't wouldn't disagree with you and say you're wrong, no one's plotting against you, but they would encourage you to maybe reframe things and use cognitive behavioral techniques to realize you could be catastrophizing or you could be mind reading. You know, these are common terms in CBT because if you walk around thinking everyone hates me, they're pretending to be nice to me, they 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 despise me, they're talking about me behind my back, that's not a very healthy way to be in the world. If you go on Twitter, or I would imagine Instagram, where I have less experience, people incentivize that sort of thing. People will say, oh, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. That's so terrible. You're right. The world hates you. We need to build a better world. So I think there's an interesting conflict there where like a lot of the stuff going on in online spaces is pretty actively anti-therapeutic. And I think it probably exacerbates mental health problems in some situations. Yeah, I'm actually working on a book right now with Greg Lukianoff, who in The Coddling of the American Mind talked a lot about cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy and how a lot of the sort of less positive attributes of my generation can be based on the fact that we've been so divorced from actual positive like patterns of thought and methods of thinking. That's almost what you're talking about on Twitter, but kind of widespread in, in a generation where we've all kind of accepted this really awful outlook 
Yeah, and I definitely what I just said, I definitely stole partially from Greg and John. So uh, thank you for <laughs> mentioning his name. Um, one one thing you write about in your piece, Jesse, is the um kind of political debate. We talked about the specifics of social media here, but if we if we take a sort of the next step is a kind of political conversation around some of these issues. And I guess the, the sort of positive starting point is that there's kind of there's kind of quite broad agreement that this that this is you know this is an issue. This being the broad question of the mental health of young Americans, I guess. But one, one thing you point out is kind of that's sort of where the consensus ends and that there's a sort of Rorschach test here where different parts of the spectrum have different um, kind of senses of why this is happening. So, so maybe if you could give listeners a kind of overview of that, there's some of those different answers, those different kind of, those different kind of theories as to what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think every political tribe can point to something about American life and use it to buttress their... Um you know, preferred narrative. If, if you're on the left, it's definitely true that the gig economy can grind people down a little bit, that inequality is pretty bad, that people feel very alienated, um, and that, you know, life just feels empty because, you know, in part because of capitalism. If you're on the right, you can look at sort of the breakdown of traditional family structure, people waiting longer and longer to have kids or just not having kids at all. And you could say that makes people feel more alone and isolated. So I think there's a lot of, oh, and then, I mean, if, if you fear technology, uh, just in general, there's a lot of evidence there. So I think because these aren't the sorts of questions where we're ever going to get really clear answers and because the answer is probably 15 different variables interacting in complicated ways we'll never understand, it does leave, leave open this interpretive space for people who are representatives of particular tribes or agendas to say, this is why it's happening. And and I think, you know, some of them may make decent points, but it's going to lead to a lot of bloviating. Yeah. I mean, to me, the interesting question is where in that big kind of, in that big tangle, can you find a kind of something that you can build a big consensus around, right? Like you can, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of responding to some of these things, you know, conservatives might emphasize like community and sort of institutions like that. Uh, the, the, sorry, institutions that make kind of communities strong. The left will do that maybe emphasize, you know, kind of more hard, more sort of harder economic rights and and kind of things like that. So, so the question is kind of where do, where does all that land in terms of something? That- yeah, and it, when I think there's actually probably some agreement. I mean, I think the agreement is probably people need to feel like they're a part of meaningful communities to thrive, and it. Uh, me speaking as me, I don't think it matters that much whether it's a church or a bowling league or a union you feel strongly connected to. So I think like that, that's a perfectly fair thing to say that if people don't feel like they have a community that is meaningful to them, they're more likely to suffer. I think a lot of it's also very geographically dependent and contextually dependent, like especially being a young person growing up in New York, I probably like in a more progressive society, I relate more to the kind of conservative qualms with things that have been lost that are more traditional, but I'm sure in a different context and outside of my little microcosm bubble, I'd probably have a more nuanced take and probably take things from the other side of the spectrum there. And so I think often kind of hear people's personal cultural context coming through and what they prescribe as the issues. Let's just focus on, again, something that Ricky, you talk about in, in, with with relation to universities, but which obviously has broader kind of application, which is the for the sort of free speech uh, uh, thing. I know you you write about this a lot, and Jesse, you have your your views on it too. But I'm interested in whether there's a is there anything generational we can tease out here in terms of how Gen Z thinks about free speech versus millennials and. I always, I always feel like there is an, sort of, I always sense that there is, and then I can't find any kind of 
actual polling evidence to suggest that. But but Ricky, make me feel optimistic about the fact that the you know we've bottomed out with kind of lame. Uh, sensorious millennials um you know i don't think that we've bottomed out with the millennials for sure but i think that there's a growing sentiment within gen z that there's something wrong with how we approach like free speech culture and speaking our mind that probably wasn't really the case with millennials because it got so severe and so censorious when gen z got to campus and there's like a silenced plurality of young people you know the majority of us are either moderate or conservative it's not like this woke orthodoxy is just the entire spectrum of gen z and so when you look at statistics and like for example the opinions on cancel culture broken down by generation generation z has by far the most negative view of it because we grew up kind of steeped in the censorious culture and especially in times of our lives where we like are supposed to be screwing up like being a teenager and saying stupid things and now it's forever on social media and we we all kind of intuitively know that this isn't right even if we do politically agree with the status quo on our campus or or whatever context that we're in but if you look at the statistics on cancel culture i think that's where i, I take my greatest hope is the fact that young people who've been told that like this society is graceless and and we don't forgive you for screwing up and you can't like play around with the difficult ideas and and stumble and and kind of be awkward and clumsy in a classroom or or touch a third rail and then change your mind without forever ruining your life like even if our political uh preconceptions are are confirmed by our campus climate we know that that is intuitively not a way to grow up and so hopefully more and more people will speak out. And I found that like just being a kind of more heterodox voice on my own campus, the amount of people who've reached out to me and said, like, I, I can't tell anyone I agree with you, but I do is at least a very high number. It's sad that they feel like they can't be open about that. But I think that there's a growing sentiment in my generation that something has to change here. Uh, Jesse, when we I I remember, um, there used to be an argument out there, maybe there still is that, you know, soon we'll have a generation that like grew up on, who are kind of politicians and public figures who who grew up on Facebook grew up on Instagram grew up online and therefore we'll just there'll be so much embarrassing stuff that we'll just have to be we'll just learn to be tolerant because like everyone will have an embarrassing tweet or an embarrassing photograph or whatever and doesn't seem like we've reached that point yet no I, I do think we'll get there eventually and I think you do see these you know sporadic cases where people, there's a backlash to the backlash against someone. John Ronson's book has a good example of that. I mean, he wrote that forever ago now, so you've been publicly shamed. But I think like, I think the average person does not want to swim around in a bath of just outrage and bad faith attacks. The problem is online communities are not dominated by the average person. The average person is not that online. But I think, I, I think a lot of the outrage stuff does just burn itself out. And I, yeah, I have some hope that, that that will get better in the future. I think like the widespread like condemnation of Team Vogue for letting one of their editors go over an old tweet from when she was literally a teenager was like the first instance where we saw someone who was truly an adolescent when they were when they said something that was canceled because it was an old tweet that was here and there and like that was sort of a cultural moment in my mind that I hope will ultimately be a tipping point where we see to your point more and more grace because literally everyone has something now. Okay, well, well, here's hoping the um, the excesses of Teen Vogue lead us all to the promised land uh, of a more tolerant <laughs> online culture. 
Okay, Jesse and Ricky, thank you very much for joining the podcast and thank you for your excellent pieces. Uh, listeners, go go forth and subscribe to the magazine where you can where you can read these great journalists. So thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank me. you for having us. Yeah. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.